The heart is a hard-working marvel. You know, your heart can keep on beating automatically even if all other nerves are severed. It beats an average of 75 times a minute, 40 million times in a year, two and a half billion times our hearts beat if we live 70 years. At each beat, the average adult discharges about four ounces of blood. This amounts to 3,000 gallons a day. 650,000 gallons a year. That's enough to fill more than 81 tank cars of 8,000 gallons each. The heart does enough work in one hour to lift a 150-pound man to the top of a three-story building if it were pumping a hydraulic lift. Enough energy in 12 hours to lift a 65-ton tank car one foot off the ground or enough power in 70 years to lift the largest battleship afloat completely out of the water. The heart is amazingly powerful. But that's not the heart that I want to talk about this morning. The heart, as it is referred to in Scripture, and that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5, when he's talking about being angry and lusting after someone and how this means we have committed a sin, though we haven't committed a sin with our hands because our will and our volition are what's at stake in this discussion as the seat of our emotion and our spirit and our volition and will the heart is corrupt and easily corruptible it can be chock full with courage as easily as it can be filled with malice it has as high a capacity for virtue as it has for violence All week long, I've been reading, thinking, praying, listening to all manner of deep philosophical guidance to try to figure out a way to make this passage of Scripture stick. I don't want to just talk about what Jesus is saying here. I'm really hoping that these four points of this message are four ideas that can give us so deep a guidance so as to not just discuss the changing of our hearts, but to have a few practical ways to go about doing that very thing. One of the Puritan preachers that I love to study, John Flavel, wrote this little book. I have an 1812 edition of this little book, this little leather-bound book called Keeping the Heart. And in it, he says something most poignant that every Christian does well to remember not just on occasion, but as a kind of guiding, central, rudder-like principle to the sailing of our life. He says, there is nothing harder for the Christian than keeping the heart. He says, there are forces on the outside that attack us. Our enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour. He never rests. He never sleeps. He says there are forces inside of us because of our corrupt nature. 
where our very flesh and our will and our motives seem to be at war with themselves. Christ is not only concerned with the restraining of our behavior, but the transformation of our very motives, our wills, and our desires. Christ, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and we don't talk about that enough, by the very presence of the living God inside of each one of us where we have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. No longer must men sojourn in pilgrimage to Jerusalem to go up to Zion to encounter God. Now He dwells within us. But sometimes He dwells within us like a stranger and we need to re-encounter the Holy Spirit. I read an article not long ago about a young woman who was living on her own for the first time at a new job after college. She had some kind of little apartment in a major city. And after a while, she began to notice that when she was gone, things in her kitchen were different. She was missing a glass of milk. She was sure it was brand new and unopened, but there was just a little gone out of the carton. There were some breadcrumbs where there shouldn't have been and where the heck did the bread go? This went on for several weeks, and after a while, she came to discover that there was a homeless man that had taken up residence in her attic. And when she was gone, he would come down. Perhaps some of you have heard this same story. And he would live in her house. He knew her schedule and her routines. He never harmed her. He never attacked her. He was like a silent presence in her own home. I think for some of us, the Holy Spirit is exactly living inside of us in a similar fashion. He may not be stealing our milk or eating our bread, but there He is. And you and I, because of a lack of awareness of His presence inside of us, if we are alive in Jesus Christ, if we have experienced the new birth, then there is the very presence of God living inside of us and reshaping us. You see, religion seeks to restrain behavior. It's a lot like law enforcement. We loved those of us who went down to the juvenile detention center. And our ultimate goal as a church, the vision that I have for that ministry that I'm hoping will continue and grow and flourish, is to bring more than restraint on behavior because that's all law enforcement or the judicial system or religion can ever do. James says that true religion is the looking after of widows and orphans in their affliction. And that's the outgrowth of a changed heart where you and I become different kinds of people. Where rather than judging those who have done something wrong in the world, we recognize that we are all sons and daughters of Adam and of Eve and we are all in a similar condition. And if we are alive in Christ, then it is our calling and our, our commission and it is our great pleasure and joy to see the love of God not only reside in us, but to flow out of us into the lives of others. Don't you see? The mission of the church is missions, not because it's drudgery and some heavy yoke that Christ has cast upon us, but because it is the fulfillment and the completion of our joy. The road to changed motives runs through the heart. And here are four ideas or four principles that I hope you can apply in your life today. 
conversion, conviction, confession, and consecration. First, there is conversion when we would consider keeping the heart or having a heart change. In Jeremiah 17.9, the Bible says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You and I are born with great capacity for good, but we are also born with a propensity to sin, a, a constant inward desire to do it. It comes by our very nature. And these two natures are at war inside of us. Any right anthropology, and that is simply the biblical doctrine of humanity, of what is a person, what are we, what, how are we made up, must account for two things. The Imago Dei, that is the image of God. You and I were created, and God put His thumbprint on us and said, it is good. We're made in His image, and so we have capa great capacity, great creative capacity. But didn't last long in perfection, did it? And humanity fell. So we must recognize as well that you and I have an inheritance from Adam. We look like both of our fathers. Our Heavenly Father has gifted us with great capacity for creation, for beauty, and for love. Our earthly father, Adam, has shackled us with a sinful inheritance. Here's a point that grows out of this. Two ideas. One, you and I cannot judge the unbelieving world for their sin and the way they live. And closely related to that is this idea that the church's primary mission in the world is not moral influence. Be a good person like us. Rather, You and I must, we must have an authentic conversion. I would not call into question the salvation of any other professed believer, but I would remind you of the simple message of God, that there must be an encounter with Christ that brings about the new birth before any of this will make any real difference in our life. You see, because Jesus in this passage is not talking about what we do. He's talking about who we are. I was a lost, wretched sinner when Christ found me. It was really clear. Christ came into my life and I had a radical transformation. For some of us, having grown up in the confines of religion, it is possible to believe ourselves to be firmly seated in Christ when all we actually are are good moral people. I want to submit to you today that if you are uncertain that you are alive in Jesus Christ, if you have not met this primary criteria for heart change, if you do not know that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you, Oh, there's always doubts and concerns, and am I really alive in Jesus? And does all of this really mean what the preacher and the Bible and my parents and whomever said it did? But there is a security that comes in knowing that you are a child of God. And if you are a person who cannot say with bold assurance and confidence, I am his and he is mine. I have 
heard the calling of the Holy Spirit and I have submitted to His Lordship and He is indeed my Savior. If you are that person, I would submit to you, don't leave this building today without you and I praying together so that you might leave in great confidence and then go out into the world to share Christ, not to moralize. If we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth, it says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6. Are you certain you are alive in Christ? Before our heart can change, we must have conversion. Secondly, we need to consider the reality of our conviction. The Holy Spirit can't sanctify a heart until He lives in it. You see, religion can teach you to be a better person. In a similar way that law enforcement can require you to act in a certain way. But only the Holy Spirit taking up residence in our hearts can begin to change and reshape our desires, our will, and our motivation. You and I have got to have something that goes far beyond a simple knowledge that God exists to a deep and abiding reality that He exists in me. There are two kinds of conviction of the Holy Spirit. There is the outside in and the inside out. There is that conviction that comes upon the proclamation of the preached Word of God. Or for me, it was just reading the Word of God. There is a conviction that comes that says, I am lost and I am in need of a Savior and Christ is that Savior. That's the outside in. And then there's the inside out conviction. That's what I'm more concerned about as a pastor in this capacity. He convicts believers to be more like Christ. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage of Scripture. He's saying, it's not good enough. Don't, don't settle at the place where you just do better stuff. You say, I don't commit adultery. But Jesus is saying, if, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And what is he saying that for? Because Jesus, in John chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17, says that he didn't come to condemn the world, so he doesn't come to cast a heavy burden and say, hey, you're so bad, I can't even deal with you, because even if you don't commit adultery, you still want to. Is that what he says? Verse 17 says he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So what you and I have to do is to take our want to to Jesus and then let the want to remaker the master craftsman, the Holy Spirit, not only live in our life like a, like, a, like a homeless man in the attic, begging for our attention, so much so that we forget about His presence. No, that we walk in union and in communion with the Holy Spirit and let Him begin to reshape and constantly change the mechanism of our want to. What Jesus is saying is that motives matter. The Apostle Paul recognized the great difficulty of this in Romans chapter 7 and verse 15, where he says, For I do not understand my own actions. Can anybody say amen to the Apostle Paul? He says, this is so, look, you say the Apostle Paul, he was so holy, I can't, I can't live up to his standards. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 and verse 15 says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do everything I hate. Listen, we're not talking here about moralism, be a better person. I'm not saying that. Jesus is saying, 
even your motives. I want to own those. I want to live inside of you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that you can have clarity in your convictions. If we would have clarity in our convictions, we must respond to the convicting presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Learn to hear His voice and obey it. Don't tune Him out so long and so hard. This is the miraculous, supernatural aspect of the Christian life. That the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but it is possible not to make Him stop speaking, but to tune Him out. When I was a little kid, I loved Scooby-Doo. Anybody like Scooby-Doo? Come on, stay with me here. This is, this is not a long sermon. I love Scooby-Doo. And I loved even more the Dukes of Hazard. And uh, I had this one babysitter who, uh, I, I vividly remember this. I was a little younger than Hansel. I was very similar to Hansel. I had a lot of energy. But that television, when Dukes of Hazard or Scooby-Doo came on, or Casper the Friendly Ghost, anybody remember that cartoon? And uh, I would watch those, and I was like six, seven years old maybe, and this daycare woman fired me from her daycare. And uh, she, I, I vividly recall her just so upset at my mother. She says, he either is running around like a maniac, or if Scooby-Doo's on, he just tunes me out. I don't, he just says, though he doesn't, hear anything that's happening around him. And then I watch my own kids and I'm like, oh man, you guys, you guys are skilled like me. <laughs> and then my wife says, hey, I've been talking to you for 20 minutes <laughs> while you've been watching that video on YouTube about the history of Detroit. Will you please turn it off and listen? Or she says, she says to everybody, does nobody hear the dogs barking in the backyard? It's time to bring the Basset Hound crew in. To which I say, by age six, I acquired the capacity to tune everything out. And you would do well to learn this methodology. But here's the trouble. The Holy Spirit is speaking. Are we listening? Or have we tuned Him out? If you are a believer, if you have received authentic conversion, something beyond religion, if you have genuinely from the heart confessed Christ as Lord, now He is yours and, and you are His, and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence. For most believers, there initially is a great deal of excitement. Oh, I'm a oh, this is new. I, I sense God's presence. He's speaking to me. Oh my gosh, I read the Word and now I understand it because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is going to guide us into all truth. So now it makes sense to me. It used to be wooden and dead. Now it's alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to the bone and the very marrow. It changes my life. And then you got to go to work on Monday. And then the kids got to go to dance and theater and whatever. And then before you know it, you're like, you're just not listening to them. I think here's one tool that is practical that can help us to stay connected so that we might keep the heart, as John Flavel says. So that the inner desires might not choke out the life of the Holy Spirit and the external influences and attacks might not overwhelm us like a child under a 20-foot wave, like, that it might not occur. The third principle is confession. We usually think of confession only in terms of confessing sin or, or some of you who grew up Catholic, you think of, oh boy, I gotta go to the, you know, to the whatever, the confessional to receive the sacrament of reconciliation. Or you think, oh, I've got to go confess what I did wrong to my friend or, or whatever. Or you think of communion, you're like, before communion, I've got to confess. I've got to, I've got to listen up the admonishment of the Apostle Paul and, and not take this in an unworthy manner. You think of those terms. 
The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it is true that that's a part of initial repentance so that we might be born again. As Jesus told Nicodemus, you've got to be born of water and of the Spirit. You've got to be born in flesh and you've got to be reborn in Christ. And then we need to have a lifestyle of ongoing confession. When we know we have committed egregious sin against another, we've got to confess it. Otherwise, it builds up like, like just junk nastiness, you know. It gets old and stale, like, like it, it produces, it, it creates conditions of the soul that produce the mold and mushroom of decay. I was watching a video last night about Detroit. Well, some of these schools they closed down, and there was a school that they had to shut down a couple of years ago because it had been so neglected that mushrooms were growing in the bathrooms. Mold was all over the place. And we can look at that and we see that, oh, it's so obvious that some, something must be done. What about in the condition of our own spirit? We must confess. We can't keep it in. We can't harbor bitterness against that person who we can't stand. We've got to confess it. If, if we humble ourselves, he will lift us up. There's another kind of confession I want you to consider today too. What is your self-talk like? I can't possibly be the only one who talks to themselves. Anybody? Right? Christina's like, what are you saying? I'm like, nothing. I was talking to myself about something. I was upset at this hammer, whatever. What is your internal thought life like? What is your self-talk? What do you confess about yourself, others, and God? What are your daily patterns of how you think. Go to the next slide, Roman. We're going to scroll through five slides. It's going to bring us back to one just like the first. I want to suggest to you, and I'm going to publish a little list of these to put out maybe in a little booklet form, or I'll put it on the website as a blog post. I'll, I'll produce these and more of these. When you wake up in the morning, what do you say to yourself about yourself and your day? Oh, Another day older and deeper in debt. Is that what you say? You see, we have an inheritance of sin nature from Adam, but we also have the image of God stamped on us, the imago Dei. It doesn't make us little gods. It makes us God's children with similar capacity to Him for creation. And you will create a pattern in your life, and I will do it in mine if I have improper self-talk. If the first thing out of my mouth is, I can't believe I have to get up. Oh, I hate this. Oh, I have the drudgery of this life. Right. Perhaps confess over yourself, your children, your church, your friends. If you're, if you're an employer, your, 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 your subordinates. I am a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Go to the next slide, Roman. I have died and been raised with Christ. and am now seated in heavenly places. Go to the next one. I am dead to sin and alive in righteousness. You see, there is a sense in which we create our own reality, not because we have the capacity to shape reality, but we do have the capacity to shape the lens through which we view what's happening in the world. Are we going to project onto the world the promise of God or the pain of its present brokenness? Go to the next one. I take every thought captive unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. 
casting down every imagination and, and, and every high and lofty thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. You see, all of a sudden, when the Holy Spirit is inside of you and this book becomes alive, now we must confess the promises of it. I am who it says I am. I'm a broken sinner, but I'm also a child of God. And I have the ability to confess His promises. Go to the next slide. And I must do it. Because the Bible says in Proverbs 23.7, As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Therefore, all of my thoughts will be positive. I don't speak negative things. Ephesians 4.29. That's how we keep the heart. We bring the Word of God to bear in our life. And lastly, we seek a lifestyle of authentic consecration, which simply means to be set apart for God's use. What is the time, talents, treasures, resources of your life and of mine? Do they belong to God? We will never have clarity in the Christian life or purity in our thoughts, our wills, our volition, the motivation of our heart until we get serious about removing idols from our lives. Because when idols hold our hearts, they cannot be set apart for God. F.B. Meyer said it this way, and I'll conclude with this thought. Consecration is only possible when we give up our will about everything. As soon as we come to the point of giving ourselves to God, we are almost certain to become aware of the presence of one thing, if not more than one, out of harmony with His will. Every room and cupboard in the house, with the exception of one, is thrown open to the new, the new occupant. Have you ever sold a house? Or had to return a house that you rented that had to be returned in perfect condition? And maybe there was that one thing that you didn't want the potential buyer or the owner of the home to see. Maybe that one spot on the carpet, that's where you put the rug over it. You know what I'm talking about. Maybe that window that you cracked so you keep those blinds down. Oh, sir, come around this way. Let me show you the flower garden to avoid that old shed in the back. Every limb in the body but one is submitted to the practiced hand of a good physician. Every room in the house is thrown open except for one that we keep behind. But that small reserve spoils the whole. To give 99 parts and withhold the hundredth undoes the whole transaction, F.B. Meyer says. Jesus will have all of you or none of you. We would live in a fever-stricken house so long as one room was not exposed to disinfectants, air, and sun. Who would do that? Who would become responsible for a bankrupt person so long as one ledger was kept back? who would co-sign for a fool. The reason that so many fail to attain the blessed life is that there is some one point in which they hold back from God and concerning which they prefer to have their own way and will rather than His. This one little thing mars the whole, robs them of peace, and compels them to wander in the desert. I would say to you today, allow the Lord to own your want to. So we might keep the heart. We must be converted. 
And we must not judge the unconverted world, but rather love them all the way to the cross. We must allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit to reshape our attitudes and our wills. We must be a people of confession who confess their sin before God and man in accordance with the Word of God. And lastly, God is calling us to consecration. Maybe that's why I like having made friends with the nuns over here so much. I appreciate the depth of their consecration to God, even if I differ on some points of how they go about it. God is calling you and I no less to be fully committed to the Lord. And that's the only way we'll find pure joy fulfilled in Him and us. Amen.